boy, Future Left is having a great day. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Adam. Here's the other guy. Casey, beep, beep, bop, beep. Uh, we're having an exciting day uh, uh, with Ben Tarnoff, a uh, friend of the re- returning guest of the show. Uh, unfortunately, experiencing some technical difficulties on our end today, so, and Ben's being great about it. But Ben Tarnoff, uh, just by way I of blame introduction, ben. I don't. Uh, just by way of introduction, uh, Ben is uh, an author and also the founder of Logic Magazine, which is really great, and you should check it out. Um, ben, uh, welcome back to Future Lab. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And um, we, uh, we, we invited Ben on because recently you wrote this piece called Platforms Don't Exist, uh, and it was republished in Jacobin Magazine. And um, uh, I feel like I'm rushing because we uh, the, the inside we joke here this. is that I've done all this <laughs> and, uh, and I, I feel bad. Um, but basically, uh, we're, we're talking about, um, well, in Ben, you're, in your piece, you describe a few different types of ownership and thinking about what uh, some of some institutions, some platforms, well, and we can get to that because you, you kind of push back on the notion of, of platforms in your piece. Uh, what what these might look like under socialism, but we're trying to play a fun game. But Skype decided to fuck with us today. But anyway, yeah. we're we're we're, uh, we're trying to play a fun game that's like collectivize, nationalize, or abolish. Collectivize, obviously, uh, not obviously. I, I made this game up. Nothing's obvious about it. Uh, collectivize would refer to some sort of worker ownership or maybe user ownership. Uh, uh, nationalize, ref- or maybe we should think of this as like the public ownership option. Maybe there's a municipal level to this. And then obviously abolish is just like, put that, put that in the bin. We don't need that under socialism. We're not going to need right, that. Are you, are you okay with that framing for the different models, Ben? I like it. Let's do it. Uh, so we're going to go through some sort of uh, some IPs here and, and see what, uh, what Ben thinks we should do. Yeah. with them we we already should we go back over the ones we've already done i, I think the first one was so, sort of interesting you go for it yeah, yeah yeah so so ben twitter uh collectivized nationalize or abolish what 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 is twitter what's there um how can it be used if we sort of restructure it yeah so i think twitter and social media more broadly is a interesting candidate for some form of cooperative organization cooperative ownership could imagine uh, cooperatives of users and, and kind of users in connection with the workers who are building and maintaining the platform. There are a number of interesting experiments in this space. There's a project called Mastodon, which is an open source project, which is essentially a kind of decentralized federated version of Twitter. The idea being that you can run kind of different Mastodon instances. Each of those instances can have their own kind of content policies uh, around, you know, the, the types of content that they prefer discuss and also what they have folks. Um, sorry, my, <laughs> to add to our litany of technical difficulties, my Bluetooth headset just said it's, it, the battery is going out. Lovely. That's perfect. So I'm going to uh, actually, it might actually just be fine off the speaker laptop. So let me take them off before they blow out. Okay. Hi, Ben. Hey, can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you. All right. Sorry about that. I had to make my contribution to our technical difficulties. That's okay. Good, good, good. Don't worry about it. I feel I feel better now that you've had one. You know. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, should we just pick up on on that one, or? Well, I, I maybe we can 
sort of leave in that there was a bit of a glitch because I felt like I, I organically what I was being led to was to ask. I, I think last time we mentioned this, Twitter and Facebook were brought up, but I feel like to me both of those are sort of they're both social media platforms, but they're both very different. Like and there seems to be aspect or it feels like there are aspects to each of them that feel like feel similar to what we would consider a public good. Um, what is that? Cause I can't, it's, it's hard for me to articulate or for me to pin down what, what is it about social media platforms that, you know, is a thing that if we were to collectivize, we would want to salvage. What, what, what are they essentially? It's an interesting question. And I think it's, an important line of thinking that you're identifying, which is when we think about the various kind of entities that compose different precincts of the internet and how we could decommodify and democratize them, it's important not to just take at face value the entities that currently exist and ask the question, well, what would we do with Facebook? What would we do with Twitter? I think the more interesting question, which I think you're alluding to, is, is to step back and say, what function do we think these entities provide? Yes. Is this a function we would want to continue to exist in a more kind of dignified democratic arrangement? And if it is, then what are some of the ways we could uh, meet that functionality? Again, these are, these are kind of questions that I think we can go some of the way towards speculating answers of um, in these kinds of conversations. I think Ultimately, what we want is some type of democratic process where the types of people who are going to be using these services are intimately involved in their design and their implementation. So I should maybe preface the kind of whole conversation with that about the need to build participatory structures where people can actually engage in the creation of these uh, new services themselves rather than having a kind of technocratic form imposed from above. But I think, you know, with that caveat, you know, for me, you know, social media broadly is just a very valuable way to remain in touch with people, to kind of source um, content from the web. I mean, it's kind of how I get most of my reading material. So I think with these in place, we could think about how we might design a kind of cooperatively owned, cooperatively organized social media platform along these lines that I think could probably serve many of the same functions of these platforms, um, but actually be, be governed democratically. And then I think that, you know, the other interesting element is how might we go from here to there? Because I think it's very, it's relatively easy to speculate about better platforms um, or what, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. But the kind of question of transitions is always a particularly interesting one. And not one that the socialist left is often very good at. <laughs> yeah, well, a, lot wanna, invol- a lot of the, a lot of that involves sort of wrenching away power and ownership from the powerful owners, right? That, I mean, that's a that's a large part of it. We can have these collective structures, but how do they? How do we get the? I don't want to say monopoly, but like how how do we get the? Uh, I don't know how to that framing framing is a is an interesting component of this as well. Just on the. Uh, sort of I don't know, dialogue front, because we, we wouldn't want to say, how do we get the monopoly using that sort of capitalist jargon? How, 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 would, how would we frame that? Or am I even articulating something that's coherent? Well, I, I think no, one of the things, probably not. 
no, Adam's having a good time. I'm hearing, Casey, is, you know, how do we, you know, how do we wrench the power away from these big, you know, tech monopolies and start to build something that feels a bit more democratic and participatory? Yeah. And I think this is where it's exciting to think about the different public policy tools that could be at our disposal and how these different forms of ownership can kind of interact and overlap with each other. So we can't right. really think of them in isolation. We think of these more within the context of an ecosystem of different kinds of approaches. So to give an example, and this is something that I discussed in my piece, um, in the 1950s, the Justice Department reached a settlement with AT&T, um, which at the time was a kind of regulated monopoly. And it told AT&T, you have to open your patent vault and freely license your patents to anyone who asks. And this um, is kind of seen as a major victory of the antitrust movement, the, of the anti-monopoly tradition more broadly. And, you know, a lot of companies basically are started on the basis of being able to get a, uh, a kind of free license to, it, to an AT&T patent in their vault. So in the piece, I speculate that we could use the same public policy tool to potentially open source uh, kind of some of the, the main kind of proprietary algorithms, proprietary pieces of software um, within, you know, kind of social media, for instance, or within search and make it possible for people to develop alternatives, kind of actually free and open source alternatives or alternatives that could provide the basis of cooperatively owned platforms on that basis. Another public policy tool also from the antitrust toolkit is enforced interoperability. So this is something that kind of current antitrust community is pushing hard in the case of a company like Facebook. So telling Facebook, we want you to uh, embrace open and transparent standards and make it possible for other companies to freely interoperate with your platform. And I think if we push that idea far enough, you could imagine having a whole host of open source or kind of cooperatively owned and organized interfaces that are interacting with the data that is held by Facebook. So they could access, say, your social graph, you know, your interests, all of the data that's held on Facebook servers, but it's serving them to you in an interface that is actually kind of democratically organized. Maybe it doesn't have advertising on it and so on. So again, that would itself probably create a kind of death spiral <laughs> for yeah. Facebook as a company, which we could see possibly as a, as a virtue. That might Yeah, we, uh, we would just all applaud as, as it hurtled toward the earth. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so I there's I feel like we're digging into uh, uh, more of the meat than I intended in our game. So I'll, 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 I'm going to do a few more of our, our little game, and then I, we can actually get back to the the more serious uh, you know the more serious discussion. But uh, so so one that might be a little easy, but one that I think will lead us again to a fruitful area of the conversation: um, collectivize, nationalize, or abolish Comcast. Mm. So I think Comcast. You know, again, this is a bit, these are often complicated questions because these are big conglomerates that are in the business of a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Comcast is part of this conglomerate that is, you know, cr creates content, has studios associated with it. Yeah. But Comcast, to the extent that it's uh, a major player in uh, the physical infrastructure of the internet. So, you know, last mile broadband service, obviously a lot of people have Comcast as their ISP. 
but then also the kind of deeper networks of the internet um, moving moving a bit um, you know into the center of, of, of the network. I think Comcast belongs to a category that's a good candidate for public ownership and and different kinds of public ownership are probably appropriate for different pieces of the physical infrastructure. So I think one you know, uh, one idea that is, that is very feasible and in fact being implemented all over the country is the municipal ownership of broadband networks. So I think there's you know hundreds of publicly owned community networks around the country at the moment. There are some very high profile successes. There's one in Chattanooga, Tennessee that's that's right. quite well known that that gets a lot of well-deserved media attention. Um, there are some lesser-known ones in rural North Dakota, of all places, which rural North Dakota, interestingly, has some of the best broadband access in the country. And that's because it's served primarily by these rural electric cooperatives um, that have been mm -hmm. able to make serious investments in broadband because they don't have investors um, to enrich. They don't have executives to enrich. They're responding directly to the needs of their community. And yeah. the people in the community are typically older folks who want broadband. They want to FaceTime with their grandkids. They want to stay connected. And they are uh, co-owners of these cooperatives, right? These are consumer cooperatives um, set, you know, set up decades and decades ago. And uh, so I think that's, that's a model that we could point to when it comes to the public ownership of particularly the kind of last mile broadband infrastructure. Well, and, and are you getting a growth and an exponential growth in that model of the municipal ownership of, of the, of the infrastructure, the more of those examples we get, the more of those um, precedents that we see, is it sort of making it more common? Well, it's a great question and it should be because you can get better speeds, better service, at lower cost with this model. You can also prioritize social imperatives and say, hey, we're going to serve underconnected communities rather than prioritize profit. However, the major obstacle, as you might imagine, are the big ISPs. And they have mm -hmm. successfully lobbied state legislatures over the past several years to pass very restrictive laws that will essentially prevent, if you, if you have a municipality, you're either prevented from actually offering municipal broadband, or if you offer it, you're prevented from offering it beyond the boundaries of the municipality. So there's all sorts of legislation that's being pushed by, you know, telecom lobbyists in state houses around the country that is pushing back on these very successful experiments with municipal broadband. I want to pick up just a little bit on the North Dakota context because it occurs to me that North Dakota is also unique in that it, it's one of the only, it's, it is the only state uh, in the United States that has a public bank. I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but did the public bank have anything to do with um, these these different cooperatives, or was it more uh, as you suggested on the electric co-op side? It's a great question. I don't know when these co-ops themselves were formed. I mean, I think broadly it it, it feels you know, it, it may not have been created in the same the same year, but I think this tradition of kind of prairie populism is mm. is certainly you know alive and well in a lot of these. That's an amazing phrase, by the way. And it's it's right. interesting, right? Because these institutions, you know, see, you see this in a place like Chattanooga, right? I remember going to Chattanooga and having conversations with folks, 
uh, EPB, the, the local electric utility that supplies broadband, is a New Deal era, um, you know, local municipal utility. And it kind of embodies, and, and particularly now with broadband service, kind of embodies this core socialist idea, which is the best way to make a resource universally available is to take it off the market. That's how we democratize access to the things that people need to live and to flourish. And, you know, you just see this working so well in that model. I'm not sure, at least in my conversations, I'm not sure that folks are always like connecting the dots in that respect. Like I think, you know, there, there's a there's a lot of um, recognition that these services work well. They're quite popular. EPB, the Chattanooga one, is consistently rated the, the most popular ISP in the country. But that kind of political link to, well, we took one thing off the market, or at the very least, we we created a public option for this good. You know, what if we extended this logic into other parts of the economy? And I think that's what I'm excited about is not just pointing to these experiments and saying, hey, they, they work, but also, hey, there's a political logic here that we can extract and apply to other elements of the internet and, of course, other elements of our society more broadly. So, all right. Um... There's there's so much to dig into in all these questions. Um, I'm going to ask about another collectivized, nationalized, or abolish. Um, uh, ben, what do we do with Arby's? <laughs> Arby's? <laughs> yeah, because they've got the meats. They've got the meats, Ben. You tell me. I'm not an Arby's expert. Okay. Uh, no, oh, what sorry. are you implying? What are you implying? <laughs> these two fat guys are Arby's experts? You know what, Ben? Every time we have you on the show... <laughs> It's always fat this, fat that. You're <laughs> no, not wrong, but you're not wrong with A bunch of Joe stings. Biden jokes. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, my God. Andrew Yang jokes at the Iowa State Fair. Did um, it, was was Andrew Yang uh, fat shaming? He, he was, yeah, fat shaming Donald Trump, but that's fine. Oh, okay. He was like, he was like oh, I'd like to run a race against that guy. He's so fat he'd pass out after. Remember that? It was like a Def Jam comic. I guess <laughs> I guess I do remember it. Uh, ben, ben uh, this is a fun question. What do you think about Andrew Yang? This is completely off topic at this point. Andrew Yang is interesting figure. I think um, what's interesting to me about Andrew Yang is how successfully he's presented himself as the tech candidate. Yeah. You know, he's really kind of messaged that. And I think he fits the model of how certain people kind of think about the tech industry. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the contributors to political campaigns, you know, Bernie Sanders is the tech candidate. I mean, Bernie is 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 much more popular with uh, with software engineers than uh, than Yang is. So that's a take I've not heard. That's actually very compelling. Yeah, that's and it's, I, and like it's, it, I don't know. It's, I mean, I you know, I, I obviously don't share Yang's politics, but I think to me, what's interesting about him as a media phenomenon is that he seems to have kind of cornered the tech brand. But when you dig a little deeper, that's that's not really the reality of who people in the industry support. Yeah, it's mostly just people. He's on sort Reddit of the sort of the support. Elon Musk of politics. I I feel like that it's sort of a a, a very popular um, uh, rather than technical. Although I realize you know there's more technical about Elon Musk, but it seems just more like a popular the, the face of this. Um, what do I want to call it? The uh, boy billionaire <laughs> um, uh, movement. Yeah. Tech savior. Casey, you wanted to uh, ask. Um, yeah, I, I sort of wanted to do a, a two for one, Ben, because to me they sort of seem connected, but I want to sort of get a sense of contrast. 
Um, so collectivize, nationalize, abolish Uber and Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Because there's there's two kinds of users for each of those. There's the sort of operator, proprietor, driver side, and then there's the you know uh, passenger or renter side to it. I mean, that's how it seems to me from a, just sort of an outside perspective. What, what, what's your take on sort of the interconnectedness there, if there is any? Are there a similar sort of thing? Yeah, interesting question. So, so one of the, um, the, the kind of categorizations that I refer to in the, in the piece is provided by Nick Cernicek, who has a wonderful book, Platform Capitalism. And I believe that, you know, he kind of lays out his own um, taxonomy of different platforms one of which I, I believe is called the, the lean platform. Um, and I, I believe that he puts both Uber and Airbnb into that category with the logic that the companies don't own the assets. You know, the assets are kind of with the, right. the person renting out the Airbnb or the person driving the Uber, but they're kind of serving, or at least they claim to be serving. We know that they do more than this yeah. to be an intermediary between buyer and seller which is not exactly accurate, but, but that's an element of what's happening, that there's a marketplace. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think in terms of Uber, we, we have a pretty good idea for how we could cooperativize it. I feel like this mm-hmm. is actually one area where there's been a fair yeah. bit of thinking and discussion and some practical experimentation around worker-owned uh, you know, ride-hailing apps and platforms. And... Um, and I think there is a question of scale here. I think in my piece, I suggest that thinking of municipal scale or kind of local scale cooperatives might make more sense here rather than having a kind of national scale um, platform. That said, there are gonna be certain municipalities where that won't be feasible. So I think that's, that's always a consideration when thinking about scale. But again, I think in terms of the mechanics of running like an Uber-like cooperative, it's actually fairly straightforward. It's kind of one of the easier um, ones in the quote-unquote platform space. Um, when we think about Airbnb, I think it becomes a bit more complicated because, you know, listening to my housing activist friends, Airbnb has has been obviously a kind of destructive force mm-hmm, on right. um, on a lot of these kind of urban housing markets. I know it's very controversial particularly in, in some of the kind of tighter, more expensive markets about, you know, particularly the kind of longer term Airbnbs that are essentially functioning like kind of lightly regulated or unregulated hotels, um, you know, whether whether that should even exist at all. So I think, you know, listening to them, and I think I would be inclined to, we might push that more into the abolished category. On, on the other hand, maybe there's some cooperative model that it can continue to exist at a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't, I haven't seen much thinking on that, but I'd be eager for thoughts along those lines. For sure. Well, I feel like we've gone through, I mean, I'll look at our little list again. I feel like this was the most interesting way of actually tackling some of our other questions, though. Um, uh, I mean, there's the big one. There's the big one still. Yeah. So, all right. So, uh, collectivize, nationalize, or abolish the big one, Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda. I love Baby Yoda. Yeah. yeah. I do too. That's not what I meant, though, Adam, and you know, and you know it. <laughs> no, I mean the the big one uh, is obviously Amazon, but I feel like as we already touched on, uh, Ben, it's it's such a big beast, uh, and it has like several monopolies within it, and 
you know, it's not so much that I want to nationalize the Mar- the, the the marvelous Miss Maisel, for instance. It's just, there's just too many components to Amazon at a certain point. But I want to abolish, do you have, I um, abolish Jeff. I know that. Yeah, let's abolish Jeff at least. <laughs> uh, but uh, thoughts you have on Amazon within your your model here? Well, as you mentioned, Amazon is a lot of different things. Um, you know, it's a logistics company, probably first and foremost. So massive logistics infrastructure. Uh, it's a, a kind of online retailer, of course. It's in the content game with with Prime, um, and it's a you know very popular, very powerful cloud provider, Amazon Web Services. Yeah. I actually saw an article. I think it was in Bloomberg. Uh, um, well, that's awkward to admit, but uh, it was basically that uh, Amazon is is uh, like now does more of their own shipping than they'd use with like p- the postal service with FedEx and UPS. They're even dominating that market for themselves. Yeah, so they've been building a kind of parallel um, infrastructure for a while and, and now have kind of managed to close the loop because they have their last mile delivery people out now. Um, that scares me, to be honest. Um, yeah, they have. Yeah, it's, it's basically become a a logistics company. Um, so it's, you know, it's hard to know where to start. I think the, the piece that I've probably thought the most about, cause it's the most quote unquote tech is that the cloud side and yeah. the cloud side is interesting because, you know, you have, so Amazon is, you know, remains the leader in the space, but you also have Google, Microsoft, um, a couple others, you know, big, big companies kind of vying for, uh, Cloud, the cloud market, which has become very a very kind of hot market and a very competitive space among these big, you know, <laughs> competitive within certain parameters, which is that you have to be a gigantic tech company yeah. to compete in this space. But it is, you know, and, and increasingly cloud is obviously important for machine learning, for, you know, kind of what we broadly call artificial intelligence, because, you know, you have... Um, companies with just enormous amounts of data in the cloud and, and want to figure out what to do with it. Um, and so these companies are also very much in the business of selling cloud-based machine learning services. So I, I think, you know, the cloud is an interesting case where when you look at the companies that are in it, it's very clear that the costs of entry to this market are very, very high. Uh, you, you couldn't tomorrow start a, a kind of very successful cloud provider company. There are kind of mid-sized companies, smaller companies like, you know, DigitalOcean, for instance. Um, but it's it's difficult to jump in and compete with an Amazon, with a Google, sure. with a Microsoft, right? So this would be a case that traditionally you might see as a kind of natural monopoly. It's a somewhat contested term, and particularly in, in applying it to kind of these more digital spheres. But I think because those costs are so high of of entry, and because they are providing a service that is really the kind of conduits through which a lot of the kind of modern internet passes. I mean, that cloud is, um, you know, it's infrastructure is a terribly overused term, but almost everything that we'll do kind of on the internet very, very broadly is now touching these providers in one way or another. I mean, when a core AWS service goes down, about half the internet falls over. So I think because of those factors, 
we have to think about a public option here because it it it's a, it wields a kind of power that I think is frightening to concentrate in a kind of private hands, uh, one hand or or three three hands, as the case may be in the cloud. And the the costs of entry are so high that it's just not going to be feasible to have kind of a small cooperative, you know, being able to spin up hundreds of data centers and start to provide kind of cloud services. So I, I'd be interested, and there, there's an interesting um, piece that I, I quote in my own piece, I think in the New Socialist from last year, plotting out what would a kind of publicly owned cloud provider look like? I think that's an appealing model to, to start to think about. And, and I think to be a bit more practical, you know, like why do we even care about something like this? Again, if we're thinking about our ecosystem and we're thinking about, you know, the cooperatively owned Uber that we, we talked about just a moment ago, that cooperative is going to need cloud computing resources, right? And maybe it's even going to need cloud-based machine learning services. And we're going to need to have some type of way to provision these kind of alternatively owned entities with the infrastructure that they need to actually function. And ideally to provide it to them on a kind of preferential basis to encourage them at the expense of their privately owned competitors. So I think that's that's a place where we could start to think about public ownership models. Absolutely. Um, I'll, so along with public ownership and cooperative ownership, there's a sort of third ownership option, which is non-ownership. How would those type of platforms be governed, the ones that would fall under that category? So I haven't thought about that kind of non-ownership bucket much in terms of governance because it's kind of a distributed model in the sense that, you know, there isn't really an entity to govern necessarily. Right, okay. So you can think about open source in a few different ways. So the Mastodon, which was the is the kind of cooperative, federated uh, social media alternative that I mentioned a moment ago, that's an op open source project. So we could imagine you know, cooperatives that are using open source technology, right? Just as we can not just imagine, we know that there are many very large corporations that use open source technology. So just because something is open source, it doesn't give us really any indication of the kind of ownership model associated with it. But what I propose in, in the kind of non-ownership bucket, there are certain functions performed by certain of these services that exist today that could be essentially pushed to the edge of the network, pushed back to the users in the form of some type of open source tool or some type of protocol. And this is an idea that's actually been explored by scholars recently, kind of protocolization, horrible word, one that maybe I just coined actually. Um, but essentially where you take something that's a proprietary process and you create an open and standard protocol around it, um, so that a number of open source um, options can plug into that. So an example of this would be email, for instance. So email is, is initially developed on ARPANET, which is you know the, this government-owned network, which is developed by the Department of Defense. And email is kind of a very popular application that's developed for it. It's in this kind of scholarly world of defense research, so there's no one's trying to make money from it but you have an open protocol so that when I kind of write an email, a number of different mail servers who can all speak this same protocol 
get my email from my computer over to yours. So I thinking about taking proprietary services, proprietary algorithms, cracking them open and creating either kind of open protocols where everyone's speaking the same language and then open source alternatives that could speak that language. It's, it's an appealing idea. I think the protocolization of social media is something that I'm very excited to see develop. Twitter of all places has actually now spun up a team devoted to exploring this idea, um, which is interesting. And, and you know, we, we should and, and, and will be skeptical of you know, what is a for-profit entity's angle on this? Um, but I think it's, my guess would be it's kind of where the future of social media is. I mean, that'll just require us to take, uh, you know, a development of, of capitalism and then use it to, to fight capitalism, as we've always done. <laughs> it's just that simple. Easy stuff. Um, uh, yeah, easy. But I want to ask, you know, because you mentioned, Ben, there's there's not often not enough thought given to like, okay, this type of ownership would be cool, but how do we get there? Um, and one thing I think about a lot, and it's not that, you know, labor is exactly a force to be reckoned with right now. Um, I like to think it's heading that way. There's been a lot of strikes uh, this year of our Lord 2019. But um, do you uh, like? Do you foresee, or, or what would you envision are some ways that organized labor can be uh, can kind of lead on kind of uh, you know getting us toward these new forms of ownership or do you, do you think that there's a role there and what do you have, you have, do you have any thoughts on what that role might look like? We're in a moment right now where there's a kind of unprecedented wave of mobilization happening within the tech sector. So, you know, workers mm -hmm. at companies like Google, uh, Microsoft, Amazon are taking action around a lot of different issues. And one of the consistent themes that has emerged um, from these mobilizations, because they've happened around so many different issues in a kind of a range of different sites, has been this theme of worker control of, you know, we want more control over the technologies that we're building. And I think beyond that, there is, uh, I think, inkling of a kind of cooperative horizon. And, and again, I think, you know, this is, where we get a little bit further out because it's, it is maybe utopian at this juncture to kind of think about this possibility. But I think there's a lot of people within these companies who feel that the, the reason that they got into technology was to build things that people use that made their lives better. And the reality of their day-to-day -day is often that they're building things that are finding slightly better ways to serve those people ads, maybe introducing dark patterns or kind of using manipulative design techniques to direct their eyeballs to places that can monetize the platform a bit better. There, there's a lot of people within these companies who don't feel particularly good about that. You know, it's not really why they got into tech in the first place. So it's exciting, I think, to imagine bringing those people into coalitions with the users of these platforms and thinking about the types of things that they could develop together. And again, I know that that kind of sounds a little bit further out, but you know, there is, there is precedent for this type of thinking. I mentioned a little bit before we have this tradition of participatory design that came out of the Scandinavian labor movement, where engineers 
are coming together with workers in workplaces and trying to design machines that work for them, that aren't just about de-skilling and displacing their labor, but are That's about cool. improving you know, their, their work and, and, and using their special expertise as workers and having that reflected in the design of the machine. So I think there are these kind of historical parallels we can point to. And that's, that's a development that I would be very excited about uh, seeing in the, in the, in the future. Yeah. Um, Ben, you, you mentioned in in the piece that this sort of four prong taxonomy of public ownership, cooperative ownership, non-ownership and abolition is a provisional one, a provisional sketch. You mentioned that there's a lot of holes and rough edges. What, questions do you think are left unanswered by the model that the left needs to sort of investigate further? Yeah, I mean, so many, so many. And I think that in general, it's important for us to embrace that kind of humility. I think particularly now, you know, I think we're in an exciting moment where there's a resurgence of interest in in left politics, but the left is very weak. I mean, we saw this in in the UK with the disastrous Mm -hmm. result that we've just had. Um, I think we need to, to have a measure of humility in our proposals um, and to, to just be very open to experimentation. I think particularly, you know, when we think about tech, which is a particularly kind of complicated area, experimentation is really critical. So, I, so I'm offering these proposals in a kind of provisional spirit and an experimental spirit and the hope is not only that people will pick up these ideas and continue to develop them, I'll, I'll certainly be continuing to develop them, but also that uh, people try and see what works, you know, because I think we, we do need to feed this dialectic of folks on the ground building experiments, both technical and social and political experiments, um, and doing the kind of thinking alongside it. So, so theory, you know, of course, this is true. I think within the Marxist tradition in general is that the theory can't exist in isolation from these developments on the ground, that it has to constantly be in conversation with it. So I think to answer your question more specifically, I think we just need a lot of different experiments at the level of code, um, at the level of ownership and organization. Hmm. I mean, that's in itself is kind of an interesting question. Um, Like, just because I feel like in our current ideological milieu, like the like capitalism has this like ideological hold on the notion of innovation and uh, entrepreneurialism. And um, so talking about experimentation in uh, a socialist context is really interesting and wondering what that might look like, how that can be faci- like kind of uh, facilitated and empowered. I don't know. It's just an interesting uh, and, and it, it's value. Its value is always going to be in, you know, by scaling back these sort of things and do, and you know having successes on a sort of micro level. These become examples, right, to sort of motivate, push forward, but also to to build on, and to sort of grow. And I, I know we talked to a uh, a guest about um, green energy infrastructure and about how there's been you know experiments on on the local level that have sort of been inspirational that are sort of helping. Uh, these things expand and take off. Yeah, and I think that's important because I think, you know, in the, the kind of current iteration of, of the left, there's a suspicion of smallness uh, and there's a kind of uh, fondness for bigness, which can yes. sometimes be warranted um, depending on the situation. But, you know, smallness does give us often places to experiment, which is really valuable. 
particularly yeah. if we're still innovating the forms um, and we're still kind of coming up with answers to the question of what does a socialist society look like? I mean, this is this is very much a live and open question and one that you know we have to be kind of developing a number of different answers to. So experimentation, not just I think in tech, but I think across the board is absolutely critical. You mentioned earlier in, in the conversation that this should be that this should be thought of in sort of an environmental, um, not in terms of like the environment, but in terms of the climate, the political climate. Uh, what are some main institutional barriers uh, to the ownership transformations that you've described? Yeah, well, I, I think there are a number of them because we're talking about different pieces of the internet, and it's obviously a very big and complicated system. You know, I think just to start at the bottom, starting at the pipes, the physical infrastructure, I'd say that the biggest and most obvious obstacle is the power of the the telecoms. You know, the, right. these big telecoms that have, as I mentioned, successfully lobbied a number of state legislatures to pass very restrictive laws on municipal broadband. Um, so that's an immediate target. And I think that, you know, has the advantage of at least we have a kind of clear enemy and there's a fairly clear political campaign that we can wage around that, um, which right. involves, you know, getting getting the right folks elected to state legislatures, um, getting people into the state houses. So I think that the path there is fairly direct. You know, when we move further up the stack to talk about the so-called platforms, I think, you know, the problems multiply and kind of the, the enemies multiply as well. And, and sure. again, I think there, my argument would be at this stage, the difficulty is more conceptual almost that we we still have to do a lot of kind of work of theorizing what this layer of the internet actually is what are the kind of services that compose it and what would some alternative models be before we go out and wage that political struggle now of course some of these struggles are happening simultaneously when we talk about abolition there are organizers on the ground you know, pushing back against predictive policing algorithms, against facial recognition. And these are very valuable struggles and struggles that we can learn from and use to inform our theorizing. But I think a lot of the work right now is is really, you know, to, to harken back to the previous question, experimental, you know, experimental at the level of intellectual work, but also at the level of kind of technical and social experimentation and then I think once we've developed some of these forms, then you could imagine waging kind of concrete strategic struggles to say, hey, we have a model for a really good cooperatively owned Uber. Let's get our local government to pass a local ordinance that says, unless you're a cooperative ride hail platform, you can't offer ride hailing services within city limits. Right. So so I think that's the division of labor is I think we need, need to consolidate these forms and then wage struggles around them. Absolutely. Obviously, once we start trying to make these inroads, capital uh, is going to fight us actively on that. Do you have any um, expectations for what that will look like or, you know, how we might prepare for that sort of fight? No, I, I think it's, you know, that's a great question. I think it's one that um, I think people on the left will always have to consider is the, the array of um, 
weapons that are, are kind of <laughs> wielded by the other side. Um, you know, the capital strike, the all, all sorts of different kind of disciplinary measures that um, that they can employ against these types of um, transformations. Um, you know, I think it's an important point because we've talked a lot about models of ownership, specifically about what some alternatives would look like. But of course, all of these exist in relationship to a particular conjuncture, in relationship to a particular balance of forces. Um, right. And it's going to be difficult for us to achieve very much of what we've been provisionally sketching out without a significantly different balance of forces. I, I think what I tried to do in the piece is to give us at least some elements that we could think about presently. Because I find it somewhat demoralizing <laughs> to read pieces, of which there are many, that sketch out some very ambitious um, proposals that would require such a dramatically different balance of forces to even begin to enact that it feels like science fiction. You know, And I think of those, that type of thinking is valuable because if and when that day comes, it's valuable that folks have been thinking about that. You know, we need medium and long-term horizon thinking. Um, but I, I think it's really important that we're able to knock on someone's door in, let's say, a local election campaign or a ballot measure or whatever it is, and to be able to give them a sentence or two about where this specifically meets their life. You know, we can't just paint the 20-year, the 50-year picture for them under kind of a dramatically, let's say, uh, stronger labor movement, a dramatically higher level of social mobilization. So that's why I like the municipal broadband piece, because it's just a really easy one to talk about with folks. Everyone hates Comcast. There are existing models that really obviously work. You know, this is a pocketbook issue. We're talking about saving people money, getting them better service. So, it, you know, it might sound a little... Um, kind of trivial or kind of like small, um, but I think it's it's just really valuable to meet people where they are, and then we hopefully build from there. Absolutely. Well, uh, Ben, we've I think we've empowered people with uh, a lot more than just one or two sentences about that. Um, so I, I, again, I'd recommend everyone read your article. Uh, Platforms don't exist, and uh, and and thanks for this conversation. This was fun, Ben. Thanks for thanks for chatting with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Yeah, I hope we can do this uh, a, th a third time sometime. But uh, until then, uh, I'm Adam. And I'm Casey. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Future Left.